0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy nall Human trafficking is a global problem, but it's not something that just happens overseas. Adults and children are exploited in the U.S. too, including here in Connecticut. In recent years, the state has passed legislation to increase penalties against those who use individuals, especially children, for sex or free labor. In recent years, Connecticut's Department of Children and Families has partnered with anti-trafficking organizations to help victims become survivors. Organizations like Love 146, an international nonprofit based in New Haven, Connecticut. Today, where we live, we'll find out how this group helps survivors while also working to educate young people on ways to avoid being trafficked. A former federal prosecutor also joins us this hour. She helped win convictions against traffickers and now works for a nonprofit that has an initiative to combat human trafficking as well. She'll tell us about the latest tools law enforcement officials are using to find the people exploiting adults and children. Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. First off, I want to welcome co-founder and president of Love 146 to our studios today, Rob Morris. Welcome to Where We Live.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So Love 146, when you hear the name, you don't think of, this is an anti-trafficking organization. So give us a little bit of history about
1: it. Sure. Back in 2002, myself and a couple of friends first started hearing about this issue called child trafficking. And back in 2002, not a lot of people were talking about human trafficking at all. It was a relatively new understanding. Um, And we just could not believe what we were hearing, that children were being sold and exploited like commodities. Um, we connected with an organization um, made up of criminal investigators that go in undercover into places specifically um, in Southeast Asia, posing as customers gathering um, you know information and evidence against traffickers that are exploiting kids like this. And they said, if you want to really do something about this issue, you should see it firsthand. And so myself and a couple of friends wanted to do something about it. We care about children. Um, and uh, we went to Southeast Asia. We connected with this group. Um, they gave us this brief training on how to pose as a customer going into these places, under these investigations. And I remember specifically the first night and this training um, – It was – yeah, it was terrifying and it was really, really disturbing having to pretend to be the very thing that everything in me is completely repulsed by, a predator who is purchasing a child for sex. And uh, going into this brothel, the last thing this one investigator said was um, if you don't think you can hold it together – you think you're going to lose it don't go in because if you freak out you could destroy this investigation and we were like no problems until we went in and we found ourselves standing in a room looking through these glass windows at uh, young girls wearing matching red dresses having even the dignity of a name stripped from them they just had numbers pinned to their dresses and on this side of the glass where i was standing i'm standing shoulder to shoulder with predators who were purchasing these kids for sex and the thing that so struck me was the looks in the eyes of these kids Um, There was no life left there. They, They were just like little robots staring at these television sets, watching children's cartoons playing on television sets. And the looks in the eyes of these kids, they were just blank stares, completely emotionally shut down except for one girl. And I will never forget her face. My guess was that she was probably new to the brothel in that there was still this fight left in her eyes. She was the only one not looking at the children's cartoons. She was staring at us through the glass and there was this determination, this defiance almost. Um, never forget the, those eyes. Um, never forget her number. Her number was 146. And so um, we left that place knowing we've got to now engage. This is not about an issue or a cause anymore. This is about real live human beings. This is about somebody's daughter, or somebody's child. And so we tried to figure out where do we go from here and start to educate ourselves. But naming the organization Love 146 was to sort of give us a daily reminder that this is not about an issue or cause. This is about individual people and we fight differently for individual people than we do for issues and causes. And so Love 146 is thinking about love being defined as defending and protecting the vulnerable and restoring and empowering the broken.
0: How did you walk out of there?
1: Devastated. We were devastated. And what was really difficult was that we had to refrain from reacting in that moment because everything in me as a father – As a man, as a human being, wanted to react in that moment thinking, can we smash through this glass right now and get as many of these kids out of here as we can? You know, the next thought was how many of these guys in this room could we take out? I mean all of these thoughts going through you and we had to refrain because of this ongoing investigation that needed to come to completion so this place can – can completely be shut down and put out of business and that takes time and that's the work of justice and that's the frustration of justice is that it takes a long time and things that you want to see happen now don't happen right now. Very, very difficult.
0: So um, this girl, 146, became a symbol for the work that you and your colleagues have been doing since 2002? Yes, uh, whatever happened to her, did you find out?
1: We don't know, so there was a raid on this this particular brothel several weeks later. um and when the raid took place, the younger girls that were there were no longer there, so somebody had tipped off the brothel owners and the traffickers about the upcoming raid, and so they had already removed the kids. It was devastating
0: so you had this mission, but how do you come back and actually you know make it happen and get people behind? Um, this cause, get donations to um, this this nonprofit that you are about to create?
1: I think the first thing that we did was to educate ourselves, is like we need to learn as much as we possibly can about this. And so we talked to existing organizations. We talked to people, what was being done, what wasn't being done. And we found gaps and places that we felt that, hey, we can do something about this to fill this piece in, to fill that piece in. And I remember in the early days, I had been in Cambodia and I was talking to the the leader of a large human rights organization at the time. And she looked at me and she says, you know what your problem is as Americans? And I sort of brace myself because you get to hear this a lot and especially in recent days, you get to hear this a lot. I'm thinking I could think of some problems, but I know you're going to tell me, so what's our problem? And she said, you don't think, you react. And she said a lot of times I think you see some human rights abuse happening in the world and instead of taking the time to create a thoughtful solution that's actually going to work and be effective, you just react to it. And because you haven't put thought into your reaction, sometimes your reaction causes more harm than good. So we sort of took that on as a mandate as an organization. of Like we need to be really thoughtful. We need to access existing expertise and bring those people into um, the picture and form our response based on expertise.
0: And so you're based in New Haven, Connecticut. How did that happen?
1: Yeah, it was actually some, some friends and I was playing in a band. Another guy was playing in a band. We were musicians. And, and I I'd say this all the time that as far as like my expertise exists in knowing what I'm not an expert in. Um, so I play drums. And I'm just the regular person that thought, what can I do as a regular person um, to do something about this? And so, again, the big piece of that was educating myself and trying to understand what is this because it is a complicated issue. It is the proverbial rabbit hole. The further in you go, the darker it gets and the more complicated it gets. So finding people who have the expertise and bringing them to the table and working together, creating responses that are effective.
0: So break it down for our listeners because when we think of the term human trafficking – you know, I said in my introduction that we're thinking about this problem that happens in in Southeast Asia and in, in Europe, um, and it's not something that we um, see here in our communities. But can you talk about what human trafficking is? That's it, it, not just sex exploitation.
1: No, it's also for the purposes of labor, and it's induced through force, fraud, or coercion. And um, yeah, and and I th- I think it's the term human trafficking is sort of a a, a fancy way of saying basically it's it's. My Modern-day slavery—it's a form of slavery where people are sold, bought, and sold like commodities. And when we're talking about children, that's just insanity.
0: Um, we're talking about human trafficking today on where we live. Uh, Rob Morris joins me; he's president and co-founder of Love One Forty Six, and it's an international nonprofit based in New Haven. I wanted to play a clip from a, an NPR StoryCorps interview just a few years ago. This is Barbara Amaya, a survivor and advocate. The summer I ran away from home, I was twelve. I fell into the hands of a woman. I was sitting in the park, and she just started talking to me. I was hungry and cold and young, and she took me to an apartment. Before I knew it, they put a wig on me, took me to the corner of 14th and I, and they sold me to a trafficker. I remember that day clearly like it was yesterday. He took me to New York, and that was the end of that, pretty much. For the next nine years, from... 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. I had a quota that I was supposed to fill every night. And if I didn't have that amount of money, I would get beat, thrown on the stairs. He beat me once with wire coat hangers, the kind you hang up clothes. He straightened it out, and my whole back was bleeding. I'd like to bring into the conversation now Erin Williamson. She's a Survivor Care Program Director at Love 146. Erin, welcome to where we
2: live. Thanks for having me.
0: So that's a hard excerpt to listen to. Again, uh, Barbara Amaya, she's a survivor of trafficking, um, interviewed by NPR. When you hear her story, is that typical?
2: That is typical. Um, Unfortunately, we do see that often happen. Uh, Youth who run away from home are especially vulnerable now what we're seeing also, though, is a lot of recruitment happening online. So we are still seeing recruitment happening in parks and in the malls and in schools, but we're also seeing predators use the Internet, Facebook, uh, apps like Kik to recruit young girls and exploit them. So we heard how Rob got into uh, this line of work, so to speak. Um, what, what led you to want to help trafficking victims? Uh, So I actually started internationally as well. I started working with street children in Kenya and then in Mexico. And when I returned to the United States, I uh, did some work in child sex tourism. And from there, I was based in Washington, D.C., and got involved with Polaris Project, which runs the National Human Trafficking Resource Center, and moved up to Connecticut and was fortunate enough to connect with Love 146 and uh, begin the survivor care program here in Connecticut. Um, Survivor Care Program, tell us about that. So we work with uh, young women and males, and I will say we, we are seeing a number of males now being identified as well, who have been identified as either being confirmed survivors of human trafficking or at high, high risk. We only say someone's confirmed if either they have disclosed the information or if law enforcement has corroborated it. So oftentimes we're working with youth where uh, they might not self-identify as a victim. Uh, oftentimes traffickers use that as part of their recruitment tactic. They, uh, they lead the youth to believe that they're making decisions when in fact the trafficker is the one that's uh, guiding their decision making.
0: And they almost seem
2: like they prey on the vulnerable. So
0: kids who have no support network, they need someone to rely on and, and in walks this person. Um, when, we, when we think about traffickers, is it um, you know, how it's portrayed in the movies or is it that, that person that could be your next door neighbor?
2: We really are seeing a wide variety in terms of the traffickers. We are certainly seeing males that pose as older boyfriends and and use that avenue to recruit youth, but we're also seeing a lot of peer recruitment, and we're also seeing a number of female recruiters the same way that that other young lady spoke about, a female who exploited her. So it really can be anyone. One of the things that we talk about with youth is the amount of information they post on social media networks. As you said, traffickers prey on vulnerabilities and youth in general overshare on social networks. And so it's very easy for a trafficker to go on social networks And to look at what are often public profiles and identify uh, who might be vulnerable and, and move forward in exploiting them. We're talking today about human trafficking, both around the world and here in Connecticut.
0: In studio with me is Aaron Williamson, Survivor Care Program Director at Love 146. Also, Rob Morris, President and Co-Founder of Love 146. When we come back from our break, we'll be joined by former Assistant U.S. Attorney Krishna Patel. She's now working on this issue on the nonprofit side. And you heard Aaron talk about technology and its role today in trafficking. Are you a parent? Do you have questions about how to protect your children? Join the conversation. You can Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Modern-day human trafficking is a global problem that's evolved beyond the form brothels portrayed in movies. With the rise in social media, traffickers can reach young people around the world, including in our communities. Today we're talking with Love 146, an international organization in New Haven that works to prevent the exploitation of children. The nonprofit also provides survivor care to minors in the U.K., the Philippines, and in our country, including here in Connecticut and Texas. In studio with me is the co-founder of Love 146, Rob. Morris and Aaron Williamson survivor care program director at love 146 before the break Aaron we were talking about um, how these traffickers groom um, minors uh, to do this kind of work and I guess it's surprising when you think about women um, when you when the, that are um you know, using these vulnerabilities in children um, to make money off of. And so can we talk a little bit more about some of the, the stories or of the, of the children that you've been able to help that have become survivors? How do you reach them when they've been manipulated for so
2: long? You know, Rob mentioned that when he was overseas, one of the things he remembers the most was the look in the children's eyes. And so we oftentimes experience that look when we first walk in and meet a youth. And I think it's through talking to them and explaining to them um, that there is no judgment, that that oftentimes what we're working with are youth that have been in really difficult situations and have had to make really difficult decisions. And And what we hear most from the youth is, if I knew what was going to happen, I never would have – and um, and oftentimes they say, you know, at the beginning I was making decisions, I was going with individuals, I, was, I had run away, I was trying to find someone to trust, to rely on. If I had knew where they were going with that relationship, I wouldn't have gone with them. I wouldn't have put my trust in them. And that is why prevention education is just so critical uh, if we're going to look to eradicate human trafficking because that is the phrase we hear over and over from youth, if I had known.
0: We're getting a tweet from Annie. Um, she asks, what about LGBT and gender nonconforming youth? She writes, they're one of the most disenfranchised groups that traffickers feed on. Can you talk about the population?
2: Absolutely. We we definitely see the LGBTQ community as especially vulnerable uh, for a number of reasons. Sometimes it's because they have been kicked out of their homes um, after they have come out. Sometimes it's because Uh, they are not sure. They don't feel like they can come out. And so they're not sure what to do with these feelings and and who to turn to to talk about these things. We're also seeing, you know, in today's generation, sexuality is fairly fluid. Um, And so oftentimes we're seeing uh, individuals who might Uh, engage in different relationships with different people and they might not identify as LGBTQ. It's just this is who they are. This is it has nothing to do with a sexual identity. But, yes, we are especially in need of services that um, that help youth in that area because they are particularly vulnerable. Um, In studio
0: with me also is Krishna Patel. She's general counsel and justice initiative director at Grace Farms Foundation in New Canaan. Krishna is also a former federal prosecutor. You may have heard her on the show over the years who has worked on trafficking cases. Krishna, welcome back to where we live. Thanks for having me. So you have a unique perspective because you worked on the the prosecutor side of things. Um, Tell us a little bit more about what you've seen in terms of trafficking in this country and cases here in Connecticut. So trafficking, you know, when I started, it was in about 2002,
3: 2003 here in Connecticut. Prior to that, we were seeing it clearly. I was a federal prosecutor in New York and we're not naming it. The TVPA came into effect in 2001. And originally, when we thought about trafficking, we thought about immigrants coming to this country being trafficked, which still happens and still exists. And what we saw then is you know, in the mid-2000s, so many of the cases here in Connecticut ended up being domestic trafficking. Exactly, you know, the, the survivor whose clip that you played. You know, that was a story that we heard over and over and saw over and over. My first case was a victim with a 12-year-old girl. And... You know, over time, we also began to see the proliferation of child abuse images and victimization on the Internet. And what has really now happened is the two have collapsed, and the Internet has become the slave market of the 21st century. And in the same way that I think traffickers exploit technology – Um, we now need to exploit technology to go after the traffickers.
0: And we're going to hear more about those tools um, that law enforcement uh, is using. But can we talk a little bit more about um, this role of the Internet? Because so many of us um, have children or we hear from educators who are concerned about the way youth are using Facebook and, um, you know, certain other social media sites like uh, Tinder. And so I'm just wondering um, if you could kind of tell our listeners a little bit more about how traffickers are getting into the homes of, of our children. And it's
3: through the Internet. Um, you know, in any single device that can be operated using the Internet, which is now almost everything. Uh, you're inviting um you know you're inviting the whole world into your home. And traffickers are savvy. They know how, um as Erin mentioned, they know how to recruit using social media. They know how to very effectively recruit using social media. We are certainly even seeing it, you know, one of the areas we're looking at is um, non-state, I will call them, they are terrorist groups who are actually recruiting online very effectively. They're able to actually recruit women and children, you know, who are then being enslaved. And so you're seeing the recruitment happen at every level, on the domestic side, on the international side. It is a very effective tool. And at the same time, um, our children are being sold on the internet. Um, you know, you're seeing most of the cases now involving some type of classified advertisement where pimps are very effectively able to sell our children on the Internet, and that's how it's happening. Like Backpage, is that right? Exactly. Um, Backpage is a very, you know, it's well-known. It's very common. Um, Its classified section is well-known to have different indicators that, you know, of pimps who are selling minor children for sex, and Johns know exactly what to look for and where to go uh, to look for them. And it's even, for clandestine crime, it's even that much more hidden because it can now happen so quickly and so effectively using the internet and the perpetrators are then able to use the technology to delete the ads right away, to move the girls, you know, and and market them in different venues at different times. And for example, you know, uh, we, know for, uh, we know through law enforcement that sporting events tend to be very kind of large draws for, for the victimization of young, young children. And the Internet has helped to proliferate that in a huge way.
0: You mentioned sporting events. So when we hear about um, campaigns to educate uh, Americans about trafficking, oftentimes in the last few years, it's been around the Super Bowl. Correct. And have we seen a decrease in that activity because there's now attention on it or they have found different ways of, of getting what they want?
3: They do. And, you know, because it's happening both on the Internet, using hotel rooms and how, you know, how private and, and clandestine this crime is, it continues. And it's so profitable after after narcotics and weapons trafficking. It is believed to be the next most profitable crime.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nall-Pathanchel. We're talking about human trafficking uh, around the globe and and here in Connecticut. I wanted to read an excerpt. uh, The National Human Trafficking Resource Center found in a five-year period ending in 2012 that pimp-controlled sex trafficking was the most commonly referenced form of trafficking occurring in places like hotels that Krishna mentioned, motels, streets, and truck stops, and often facilitated online. Commercial front brothels and residential brothel, brothels were also cited, and more than 85 percent of sex trafficking cases involved women and girls, but cases also included male and transgender victims. Again, that's from the National Human Trafficking Resource Center. And I was able to find that, um, that excerpt using Love 146 website. Uh, in studio with me is uh, President and Co-Founder uh, Rob Morris of Love 146 based in New Haven. Also, Aaron Williamson, Survivor Care Program Director at Love 146. Aaron, I wanted to turn back to you because not, I, want, I wanted our listeners to understand that the organization not only helps survivors, but you're trying to educate young people, teachers, law enforcement about how this crime continues to evolve.
2: Can you talk about that part of the, the work? absolutely so on our website in the upper right hand corner there's a button called not a number and not a number is our prevention education curriculum and it has resources there for like you were saying for youth for parents for educators for community members uh, i think one of the one of the most important things for parents, educators, community members to do is to learn about the internet and how youth are using the internet and how the internet can be used as a tool for predators, um, Oftentimes we'll talk to parents and we'll talk to we'll mention kick or new apps and they will have never heard of them. I've never heard of cattle Exactly. And so when when you're, you hear your youth saying, Oh, kick me, you might actually think that they're saying, Can you physically kick me? When in fact they're talking about an app, a messaging app that we are seeing used more and more by perpetrators trying to recruit youth. Um, and there's there's a number of reasons why perpetrators are using or predators are using certain apps over others. But one of the things that's really critical is for parents to understand this so that they can actually engage in a conversation with their children around this and talk to their children about who their friend networks are on Facebook and, and what happens when somebody who is, quote-unquote, a friend on Facebook asks them to go onto another platform, how they can and should respond, and what are the implications for that. Oftentimes when I'm talking with youth and I ask them, on general, how many friends do you have on Facebook, I'm hearing between three and 5,000. It is rare that I have a youth tell me that they have less than 3,000 friends on Facebook. So these are, you know, even the term friend implies something when they say that, oh, they're my friend on Facebook. So it's really critical that parents, that educators, that community members understand this technology. And again, I would just say there is a lot of resources out there, including resources on our website, uh, love146.org.
0: Rob, I wanted to turn to you because you began this work again in, in two thousand two. Can you clear up some misconceptions about um trafficking and, and how it's, you know, insidious, it's everywhere.
1: Hmm. Well, I don't know about clearing that up because I think it is—it is a reality that, it, like, as people become more aware that this exists and it doesn't just exist in places like Bangkok or Manila, but actually exists in our own state, in our own towns. The reality is, is this—this this is real, and it's—and it's happening. And I think one of the one of the things that we sort of woke up to was when we started out doing survivor care, specifically overseas in Asia and as well as in, U- in the UK and then started doing survivor care here. The reality was we were like, wow, we want to we stop this from happening and doing survivor care is not going to stop it from happening and that's when we started looking at the prevention aspect. Of things, there's a story that's told in social justice circles of bodies falling off of a cliff and ambulances coming and taking the bodies to hospitals and bandaging up their wounds and all of that. And then someday, someday, you know, somebody's like, "Wow, we need to build a guardrail at the top of that cliff to stop bodies from falling off." That's prevention. And so, in 2010, we started doing prevention here in the U.S. And since 2010, we've reached probably close to 20,000 young people in the U.S. And out of that was what Aaron mentioned was the not-a-number curriculum, which we're bringing into schools, into congregant care centers to equip young people to be aware of their own vulnerabilities, to understand what trafficking is, what it looks like so they can protect themselves and protect their friends. It's about empowering young people. We talk about all the time there's, there's the law enforcement piece of this that is looking at the demand aspect and dealing with the, the demand. We're concentrating on supply and wanting to eliminate the supply.
0: What has been the role of the federal government in combating this problem?
1: Yeah, I think Krishna might be the best person to actually ask that question to. Um, I I think that again, we've seen through the years since – at least since we've been doing this since 2002, increased effort um, when it comes to the federal government, whether it comes to the funds that are um, uh, allocated to combating trafficking, caring for survivors, that has increased. I think the general will has increased as well as people have become more and more aware of it.
0: But there's still people that are perpetrating these crimes. Are they getting put in jail? I and mean, what are the challenges, Krishna? So they are – they're incredibly difficult
3: cases uh, to investigate and prosecute because you're talking about a population that does not see itself as victims and they certainly don't see law enforcement as wearing the white hats. Um, they uh, – it is, as I've you know said before, it's an incredibly clandestine crime. It's also a crime – while you do not have to have movement for trafficking to happen, um, even though the name would suggest so, it is a crime where you're seeing a lot of movement of young children. And particularly when you're dealing with populations that tend to, to at a very high rate, have some interaction with our child welfare systems, you're talking about a population that is um, is so unbelievably vulnerable that it becomes very hard to actually uh, prosecute these cases. So, um, you know, having said all of that, there has still been the will and the commitment uh, to do it. And like anything else, we need to do much more of it and do a far better job of it. And I think that in a world where we are seeing resources just generally decline, and one of the most important things I think as civil society members we can all do is make sure that this stays a priority. This is a very violent crime, like murder. like It is the rape of our children. It needs to be a priority. And I think everybody in, a, in civil society now just needs to get involved to say, Uh, resources have to be dedicated to it.
0: You mentioned um, these cases are very uh, complicated. Um, You know, is that part of the reason you left uh, the prosecutor side to this nonprofit at Grace Farms Foundation? Um, No, no. And in fact,
3: you know, I feel like at least um, when you are investigating and prosecuting a case, at least in, in a person's life, in the children's lives, you have the ability to make some impact. And I think the justice component is incredibly important. The validation of the harm and the punishment and the deterrence that can come is very critical uh, in order to have a concept of justice. But what I saw all too often is, you know, there were just more and more victims. And so in some ways, the thought is, can you actually go and work on the front end, like Love 146 has shifted, to move towards an eradication strategy. Can you go and actually eradicate this crime? Human slavery is something that our society has found to be so morally reprehensible, because it is, that we have eradicated in the past. And I think we just need to learn, again, that we need to do that now. And so it was really to kind of think in, in a different way, in a broader policy way, but a more impactful way, how you move towards an eradication strategy.
0: But you think that the public overall is generally disconnected. So we see the news clips occasionally. Oh, this this man traveled uh, over state lines to meet a a 13-year-old at a local motel. Um, We're like, oh, that's a shame. It's a terrible thing. But then what? I mean, it doesn't seem like there's a real disconnect between the fact that this is happening around us. And, you know, it's something I have given a lot of thought to. I feel like I
3: have spoken about this issue nonstop since, you know, for well over about 13 or 14 years. And yet, you know, in a relatively small state with three, you know, million or so people um, still have not uh, constantly find myself in environments where people just are shocked and surprised that it's happening here in Connecticut. And, you know, I think I go back to the fact that people just disconnect from from really bad news. It's really a difficult issue, and it's it's bad news, and they don't want to know or believe too much that it's happening because they don't want to know it could happen to them or their children or or somebody they know. And so there is a real disconnect, and I think that, you know, like with many other things, uh, this is something that, as a society, I think we just have to find a way to engage in however we can and if that is simply calling your representative to say you care, I think that's that's okay.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy nalpa We're talking about human trafficking today. We have two uh, local nonprofits that are doing the work uh, helping survivors in our community, Love 146, based in, in New Haven. Also, Krishna Patel, who is a justice initiative director at Grace Farms Foundation in New Canaan. You know, Krishna, we talked about the evolution of this crime um, With technology. But what about in law enforcement? Like how police um, and how the the justice system views these victims? Um, I think under 18, they know that these people have been exploited. But if you're over 18, it's, oh, you're a prostitute.
3: And, you know, we've had a lot of learning on that. You know, one of the most incredible things for me is, you know, going through uh, trainings now where, you no longer um, have to do the training so that you're asking them, please, you know, don't look at them as a criminal. Look at them as a possible victim. You know, I think law enforcement's come an incredibly long way. I think there are members of law enforcement who care very deeply about this issue. Uh, but there is, you know, two concerns. One is somewhat of an an antiquated thought process that when you have missing children or runaway children, uh, that... You know, these are children who are effectively being kidnapped when when a pimp takes them. That's what it is. It's kidnapping. It's not a runaway. It's a very serious crime when you have a 13 or 14-year-old. And what I have found typically with most 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds who are being trafficked is most of them came into the life, you know, when they were much younger. Uh, And even if they didn't, even if they came in 18 or 19, usually the abuse on the back end is so severe because – for the pimps, you know, the younger children are easier to control, whether it's done by drugs or whether it's done by force. Um, there is an enormous amount of abuse that is happening in terms of our older population. And our law enforcement, I think, continues um, to, to do what, you know, all of our society needs to do, which is to learn more and more about this crime and engage in this crime. And when you look at that person, you know, the, the thought should not be a judgment on whether they're a criminal um, or a victim, it should be, you know, the question, you know, could this person be a victim of trafficking?
0: Aaron Williamson, I wanted to turn back to you. Um, you work with Love 146 um, with survivors. Um, I know that there have been, there's been attention on uh, Department of Children and Families and the work that they're doing uh, to help um, potential victims who are in the child welfare system. Um, so how do they, how do you work with state organizations? What have been the laws here in Connecticut
2: that are helping survivors? So I come from Washington, D.C., and uh, Connecticut is a nationally leading this effort, especially the child welfare system, especially DCF. We work extremely closely with state agencies. Uh, we're fortunate enough in this state to have a child welfare system that um, has taken on this issue. In many other states, there are child welfare systems that actually say because the abuse and neglect and exploitation is not happening at the hands of a legal guardian, that's doesn't fall within our mandate. So un- so we are very, very fortunate, and we work very closely with them. Over the next uh, year, actually six months to a year, Love 146 will be expanding our survivor care program, hiring 10 new social workers. And if you think about the fact that we started in January 2014 with this program and already need to expand to this level, that just shows you the extent to which our youth are being trafficked in this state. Uh, We're working very closely through this expansion with DCF. Most, the large majority of our referrals come through DCF at this point, although anyone can make a referral to our agency. Um, And and we have worked very closely, not again, DCF, also uh, with law enforcement and with prosecutors, I think as a state. Um, as others have mentioned uh, in this program, we are becoming more educated regarding this issue and, and we are recognizing that there are scarce resources and we need to work together collaboratively to address this issue head on. Rob, um, we heard Aaron say
0: that um, because of these grants are recognizing that there's a need for more social workers. You know, what is it about? Um our location with the I-95 corridor, are we seeing more of this activity in this part of the country because of, of the, the, the location of where we are?
1: Yeah, I think that that's a reality. I think we, we are also uh, – we have an office in Houston, Texas as well and you have the same issue there where you have a lot of um, highways meeting together in a place where transportation is very easy. Um, yeah, I think that's – I think that is a reality.
0: This is where we live. Again, I'm Lucy Nalpethanchel here with Love 146 and uh, Krishna Patel of Grace Farms Foundation. When we come back from the break, we're going to hear more about the tools that law enforcement is using to find traffickers. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpethanchel. Today, where we live, we're focusing on human trafficking. We've been talking with Love 146, an international organization based in New Haven, about its efforts to fight the global problem. In studio with us also is former federal prosecutor who helped convict traffickers locally. locally. Now, Krishna Patel is with the nonprofit Grace Farms Foundation. And, Krishna, I wanted to go back to you because we've been mentioning about how technology has changed and what are the tools that law enforcement is now using to find these traffickers um, using these sites?
3: So one of the most extraordinary uh, initiatives that have been taken on in the last few years was actually uh, taken on by the Pentagon's DARPA, their Defense Advanced Research Program. This is the group that actually gave birth to the Internet. And they uh, have created a very advanced data platform, which is a variety of tools that can more effectively lead uh, law enforcement to apprehend traffickers and to recover children in a variety of different ways. Um, For people who want to learn more, you can simply Google. The Pentagon has been somewhat open about its Memex program, and there have been articles and and, uh, videos uh, discussing what Memex is. And a variety of groups that were involved in the Memex program, kind of really some of the smartest brains uh, in our country, uh, have continued to mature some of those tools. And so one of the uh, main reasons I think I left is that Grace Farms Foundation is fully supporting the deployment of these tools to law enforcement and is willing to pay not only for the training but for the actual tools for law enforcement. And so we are really kind of testing, hopefully at a large capacity, what these tools can do. And they are revolutionary because they are able to do in minutes what could take law enforcement months um, to do, and sometimes not at all. The ability to go through large amounts of data and make connections between data points, that really can help identify where a trafficker is or where a child is. And, you know, I'll just give you one example. I had been away during the holidays and uh, had received um, an email from DCF letting me know a child had gone missing. They were very concerned. They had contacted law enforcement. When I called Marinus Analytics and Traffic Jam, the folks there, they were able to find the child within, I think, a couple days uh, and pinpoint her location in the city. Um, And
0: how were they able to do that?
3: And it is really, you know, using these tools on the Internet. Because we know these children are being bought and sold on the Internet by pimps, uh, you're able to use these tools in a variety of ways that really does this incredibly deep dive into the data and is able to make connections for law enforcement using the identifiers of the child, the offender, phone numbers, you know, different indicators. Um, At its kind of highest level, there's an artificial intelligence component to these tools where they can start – the more and more they're able to look at some information, they can begin uh, indicating patterns of behavior or give you different varieties of of other possible indicators uh, that match up. And so it is revolutionary, and I think it is incredibly important for law enforcement as a whole to understand that technology is moving so quickly – our laws can't keep up with it. And, you know, part of the difficulty with bureaucracy is is the ability just to keep trying, you know, new ways. When you know the perpetrators are using technology, you ha- that is where you have to go and, you know, equip yourselves the best way you can. And so I think that um, I am very hopeful about this and very uh, hopeful as well that our state might become the petri dish to show uh, the rest of the country that this is something that you can come close to eradicating.
0: You said without these types of of advanced search tools, it would would make law enforcement's job so much more difficult. It would take them months possibly to find um, these perpetrators. So when we go on Google and we want to search something, that's literally just, what, 10% of the Internet? Is that what I've read? And so they're able to look at the rest of what's out there. Correct. And so
3: this is, I mean, when you think, you know, about only 5 to 10% of the Internet is currently searchable in its current form. And um, so much of it either is either not captured and and searchable or is part of the deep web, the dark web, right? And and we know that is a place where so much criminal activity, particularly this type of criminal activity, is going on. And what these tools are doing are are giving you some insight into the dark web or the deep web as well as going through the entire Internet. But it's doing more than just searching. It is actually looking for patterns of behavior, the computer itself, and is really able to assist law enforcement in incredible ways.
0: I want to turn back to Erin Williamson, uh, who is with Love 146 and works with survivors. We talked earlier about this uh, education component, talking to kids, our kids in classrooms, about how they could fall victim to um, these individuals if they're not careful. Um, Can you walk us through when your trainers are in the classroom and they're giving um, these children and and teens um, scenarios of what could happen. I mean, what's the reaction when they understand that trafficking is not this like this thing that's very far away from them, but very close to them, actually?
2: Usually there's a point when we're training both actually uh, children as well as educators, parents, social workers, where their eyes get really big. And you can tell that they are thinking about a specific instance where either they were working with the youth or they themselves are being recruited. And oftentimes youth will say, oh, that has happened to me. So so for example, we often talk about Facebook because many of the youth are on Facebook and usually it's one of the places um, where traffickers go and then to first identify individuals. And we'll, we'll talk about how traffickers will set up a profile and they might even use pictures of their niece or their nephew to set it up. And then they go to the local high school or middle school and they friend request everyone. And then they, you know, some of the people accept some youth don't accept friend requests from strangers, but some do. And then they go to their friends and then they go to their friends. And so by the time they are uh, trying to friend request your daughter or your son, It seems like they're friends with 30 of their friends, and so they seem safe. And maybe their profile says that they're 18, and so they're within a certain age range. And, you know, you look at their profile, and they have things in common. And so oftentimes, youth will accept that friend request. And when we talk to them about how that friend request can go from an individual liking their posts and writing little things, and sometimes it's little things like, LOL or, you know, have a good day. It's it's little things so that their username starts popping up on your child's screen. And it's it moves from this is a stranger to, oh, this is somebody that I'm connecting with. And then they'll instant message them or they'll message them through Facebook. And some youth will say, oh, no, I don't message with with individuals I don't know. I might accept them as a friend request, but I don't message them. And then we talk about how um, somebody who's grooming them will say, oh, that's so smart. I'm so, I'm so glad that you're taking care of yourself and not messaging with strangers. I just thought we had a lot in common. I noticed that, you know, you play soccer, and, and I used to play soccer, or, or I noticed that, you know, you were struggling with math. If you ever need help, I know some great, some great tools, and I can help you out. You know what? I'll check back in a week and see if you feel like talking them. And then they'll check back in a week. Hey, how are you doing? Or they'll wait for the the message. This is the uh, ubiquitous message that we often see youth post, which is, you know, pray for me or I need help, or it's a general message where they're really asking people on the Internet to ask me what's wrong, ask me something's going on in my life, and and predators use that. Predators see that as a crack in the door that they can just Mm -hmm. push open. They know how to manipulate Yes. And so oftentimes when we give those examples to youth, youth will say, oh, yes, I remember there was this one person and they did that. And then I started talking with them. And then it got to this point where they were asking me some strange questions about my family. They were asking me where I live and who I lived with. And so they start making the connections with their own life.
0: We just have a few minutes left. I wanted to turn back to uh, president and co-founder of Love 146, Rob Morris. Um, So you're hearing that there are these interactions happening in classrooms um, with your staff, with trainers, where it seems like kids are getting the message. Um, So talk about how you feel um, since 2002, how your organization has Kind of evolved and and making this kind of impact. I mean, do you feel like this is where this is where that the work that you wanted to do it's finally accomplishing what the mission was originally?
1: It's a great question. I I think I've been having a lot of pinch me moments of wow, this is really happening now. This is really working. Things that were just a dream early on that seemed almost impossible are actually becoming a reality, and that's a good thing. But like Krishna said, there's always that feeling of there's so much left undone. there's only so much more uh, that, that we can do. And so, yeah, so there's a tension that I think we all carry of like, wow, we, we celebrate the accomplishments. We celebrate how far we've come in such a short period of time. But there's also that tension of like, wow, we still have so much more that we have to do.
0: And for our listeners, Krishna, just a couple of minutes left. Um, how can just regular people – um, help in combating this problem. Obviously, Rob Morris and his friends created a, an international nonprofit, but we can't all do that, right? So can you tell us how the average person can combat this?
1: Well,
3: the average person can certainly go and help. I love 146. There's a myriad of ways and, and some wonderful organizations. Um, either volunteer, um, you know, certainly provide financial support and, and find other ways to advocate. Um, I think the most one of the most important things as a society we need to do, all of us need to do, is um, call all of our representatives, email all of our representatives, and let them know that this issue matters to them that you know in uh, whenever we are looking at resources whenever we are giving direction to law enforcement in terms of where resources need to go uh, that this is a crime that needs to be dealt with in our society and it 's not optional it 's not you know it is a priority and I actually think it is for to me this is um, such a morally reprehensible issue that it becomes incumbent on every single one of us to do something, and that is something that can be done. Call your senator, call your representative, call your local senator, and call your local representative. We've been doing a lot of advocacy on state legislation, and um, our state needs to do a lot more. Um, we're getting there, but we need to do a lot more.
0: And we heard earlier, uh, Aaron Williamson with Love 146, grants are enabling um, organizations to hire more social workers. How many more survivors do you think you'll be able to help with this additional
2: staff? So each of our social workers will carry a caseload of five. So we're going to be able to help at least 50 youth um, at any given time. And we know even within that, we are going to be, you know, we have scarce resources. There are many, many more youth that we could serve. Again, just having started in January 2014, we have already provided services to over 120 youth in the state of Connecticut. So one of the things that we uh, pride ourselves in at Love 146 is doing quality work. Um, These youth uh, require a lot of services. They require a connection. In many ways, part of what we do is replace that connection that they were seeking in the trafficker that made them so vulnerable.
0: I want to thank Erin Williamson, Survivor Care Program Director at Love 146. Also Rob Morris, President and Co-Founder and a drummer at Love 146, and Krishna Patel. She's general counsel and justice initiative director at Grace Farms Foundation. You can continue this conversation at WMPR.org/slash where we live. I'm Lucy Malthanchel, thanks to Tucker Ives, Kyone Wolf, and Lydia Brown.